AJ Liebling is one of my favorite food writers, but he is my absolute favorite boxing writer. He wrote this, It is through Jack O'Brien that I trace my rapport with the historic past through the laying on of hands. He hit me, for pedagogical example, and he had been hit by the great Bob Fitzsimmons, from whom he won the light heavyweight title in 1906. Jack had a scar to show for it. Fitzsimmons had been hit by Corbett, Corbett by John L. Sullivan, he by Paddy Ryan with the bare knuckles, and Ryan by Joe Goss, his predecessor, who as a young man had felt the fist of the great Jem Mace. It is a great thrill to feel that all that separates you from the early Victorians is a series of punches on the nose. And I assure you that this quote from Liebling about boxing most definitely has a lot to do with food and we'll explore the connection today. Talking to chefs, and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. You're listening to the Chef Demoni Podcast. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. Welcome back. My name is Graham. This is Chef Demoni, a podcast all about food and, of course, the stories around food from the people who create it. I'm really excited to bring you today's interview, which I recorded just a few weeks ago in Las Vegas. But before we get to that interview, I do want to tell you a bit about the Vegas trip itself. And I promise I will also explain why I opened the show with a quote about the history of boxing. All right. Vegas. It was an excellent trip. I went with my wife, B, and the pretense, I suppose, for the trip was the rock and roll half marathon, which we did run, albeit very slowly, after some lackluster training. And that was with the 360 Vegas podcast crew. They had built uh, a 360 Vegas winter vacation around that event. So I've got lots of thoughts to share on the 360 meetups, on the food that we had on the trip, of course, a little bit on gambling, and something of a points and miles themed review of the hotel that we stayed at. But I want today's episode to focus on my guest who gave a really fantastic interview. So I have effectively outsourced the other Vegas updates, and here's where you can find them if you like. Dinner at Oscar's Steakhouse in downtown or old Vegas. I've created a separate episode. It's called A Snapshot of Oscars at the Plaza. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And as you'll hear on that episode, it was today's guest who kindly texted the executive chef at Oscars to make sure that we had a great experience. And wow, did we ever. You can hear all about that in the snapshot episode. It's about 10 minutes long. Now, you may remember Chef Nicole Brisson. She was my guest on episode 63 of Chef Demoni. And on this trip, we had dinner at her absolutely outstanding, like really outstanding restaurant called Brezza. You can hear all about that in another Chef Timoni snapshot episode, this one called A Snapshot of Brezza, because naming things is hard. Uh, link in the show notes for that as well. There is a general trip overview, including my thoughts on things like craps, both downtown and on the strip, some thoughts on the half marathon itself, and on the really good times that we had with people that we met through the 360 Vegas podcast crew that had organized that half marathon. You can actually hear my thoughts on the 360 Vegas podcast. I wrote into the show with a pretty detailed trip report, and the hosts kindly shared it on episode 432 of that podcast. Link in the show notes. 
I've also done a detailed review of our stay at Crockford's Hotel in Resorts World. I sent that in to my friends at the Zorkcast podcast. I think that should be coming out quite soon. I'll let you know on social media when it does come out, and you can hear from me there if you like. This is less food-focused, this report, and it's more on the hotel side. But if you're a points and miles nerd like I am, and if you like nice hotels and want to hear about various programs for staying in these hotels, uh, that might be of interest on ZorkCast. And finally, I have shared with my friend Julian, who's over at the Vegas Confessions podcast, a quick story about a dinner that we had with Julian and the 360 Vegas crowd. This was at a restaurant downtown in the D Hotel. It's called Bacon Nation. And I'm convinced our server thought that we were a risk to dine and dash. I mean, not really, but it was a very funny evening. So that quick story should be coming out soon on Vegas Confessions. Again, I'll let you know on social media when it does come out. All right, to today's show, my guest is the remarkable, thoughtful, friendly chef Gary Lamort. I'm so grateful to Gary because not only did he agree to the interview, he actually showed up at our hotel to record, which was great, and he brought these awesome Honest Hospitality toques, one for me and one for my wife, and we've been wearing them on our morning walks here in Gibson's British Columbia, where it has been a little bit chilly lately. As you'll hear today, Gary spent early days in Las Vegas at Bouchon in the Venetian, where, where many of the other Vegas chefs that I know worked as well. And Having had the privilege of staging several times at Bouchon myself, I know just how well that kitchen is run, and Gary talks today about practices that, that he carried forward from his time at that restaurant. Think vacuums, that's actually a really important one. You're also going to hear today about Gary's time working with Andre Rochat, who is something of a legend in Las Vegas cooking. Andre arrived in the U.S. from France in 1965 with $5 in his pocket and his knives. It's, uh, it's one of those classic arrival in the U.S. stories. Andre went on to create some really iconic restaurants in Las Vegas. They served very dedicated customers for decades. And this is why I started the show with that quote about boxing, about how it's possible to trace roots back through generations and through countries. To know that people who know about things learn those things from other people who really know about those things, who learned them from earlier folks still, who learned them, you get the point, so on and so on. And I think like boxing, food is an incredible uh, pursuit or skill. It's both a craft. It's a craft. And it's a craft through which you can trace and taste, actually, the handoff of knowledge from one generation to the next generation to the next generation. And what Gary learned from Andre in his time working with Andre Rochat, I found the stories of the stocks and the sauces really compelling. Knowledge from the French countryside in the middle of the last century that in and of itself was based on centuries of earlier cooking, that knowledge taking root in Las Vegas, and you can still taste it there today. And, and now Gary is passing that knowledge on to younger cooks still. So it's a series of punches on the nose, just, just a lot tastier. Andre was like from the mountains, right? And his cooking style was uh, definitely, you know, French and definitely traditional, but his techniques were different than anything I've ever seen anywhere, in particular with the sauce making. 
Gary goes on to describe the sauce making and the stock making processes that he used with Andre. So think about delicious drinkable wine in volume being used in the stock production. Think about horseradish grated fresh into a sauce for beef immediately before service. And think about high quality alcohols that are added to a sauce just before service and with just enough time for the alcohol to burn off so that you still taste the Pinot Noir or the cognac or, or whatever it might be. This is, this is exciting stuff. Also today, you will hear from Chef about his work with the Michael Mina Group and how Gary developed a keen sense of the importance of operations. Cooking professionally is about so much more than food. I think well, well-run operations are about people and about systems, fundamentally. And Gary takes really serious care with both of those fundamentals. You'll hear him talk today about the systems that his company, Honest Hospitality, uses and how detailed they are and how people-focused they are. And a huge part of Honest Hospitality's business absolutely needs systems because they cook daily for an absolutely huge number of people at the Las Vegas Raiders training facility in Henderson, just outside of Las Vegas. Everyone from players to management. And so today, Gary and I get into nutrition and just what it looks like to keep elite athletes fed with their... They they have these ever-changing schedules from training to playing games, of course, and then recovery days. I think it's an absolutely fascinating operation. There is so much more ahead. You'll hear Chef's thoughts on Yelp. I have to say, I was surprised by his point of view. You'll hear about really early cooking days when Chef and his brother cooked for a special audience as young kids. And you'll hear toward the end of the episode about what Gary cooks late night at home when he's feeling pressed for time. All right, let's go to Crockford's Hotel in Resorts World in Las Vegas. Here's my talk with Chef Gary Lamorte. Chef Gary Lamorte, thank you. Uh, for meeting, we're sitting in a hotel room in Las Vegas. I love this. I haven't been to town in quite a while. It's delightful to be back. Thanks for taking time out of what I know is a busy schedule. Thanks for being on Chef Demoni. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Absolutely. Before we, Just before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about our mutual friend, Chef Daniel Ontiveros, who works within this building. We're at Resorts World Casino. And he, of course, leads the team at uh, Carver Steak. Here's what he told me last night, that he got his start in Las Vegas in, I think, 2004, when he and Brian Howard, who is now the chef owner of, of Sparrow and Wolf and Half Bird Chicken, he and Brian and you were working on the line at Bouchon. So let's start there. What was Vegas like in 2004? Uh, what was the line experience like at Bouchon? Well, I think that the reason I ended up there uh, was almost because it was unique to the Las Vegas area in a sense that the Thomas Keller restaurant was a independent, like leased space at the time. It's uh, different now, but <clears throat> the uh, non-union and um, it was a very, I would say competitive, uh, high standard work environment. I actually, I moved out here to work at Robuchon. Okay. Yeah. Uh, which, uh, in the MGM. Yep. Which we, you know, was a, uh, being touted as the best restaurant in America. And, um, you know, doing my due diligence, I was coming from Florida 
you know, packed up my Jeep and drove across country and said, you know, before I decide anything, I'll stage. And I think I ended up at around nine different restaurants before picking Bouchon. And it's because I, I had never seen a restaurant that was so busy and simultaneously so clean. And I had worked with some master chefs before that and was very fortunate in having been exposed to high level of cuisine. But the operational standards of the Thomas Keller Restaurant Group are the, at the time, was you know, the epitome of that. Yeah. Even, even in its more casual concepts, you know, it was cleaner than what you were seeing in like three-star Michelin restaurants by other chefs. You know, I, I absolutely believe that I've had some very wonderful staging experiences at Bouchon in Vegas. And, and it was unlike any other kitchen I've ever cooked in, bigger in the teams. And one of the things that stands out to me is that at four o'clock every day, Everybody would clean down their stations, and then people would come around with vacuums and vacuum the stations, right? I'd never seen that before. Moving from the kind of traditional rubber mat to a carpet, it changes the mood, uh, the spirit, and the noise level in a kitchen, uh, but you need alternative methods to clean it. We still, I still keep that practice. So we, we, I still do that now. That was definitely one of the things that we took with us. Let's go back even earlier, and then we'll fast forward uh, to a couple of other stops that I want to ask you about, and then what you're up to now. But is it true that as a kid, you and your brother tried to cook romantic meals for your parents? I read that in an interview that you gave a few years ago. It is. Yeah, that's awesome. It is. That's um, As far as I'm concerned, that's where the cooking started. And for the record, I, I don't believe they were romantic, but I believe we tried. Um <laughs> The one that really stands out, which is like funny family story, was I don't know why I was like obsessed with trying to like create these cute moments for my parents. You know, they were very, uh, very into each other and I think also very kind to us. So, you know, the I was very lucky in that regard. But I remember turning the lights off and us lighting candles, which was like a bit of a danger zone for children. <laughs> and it was like 50-50 to set the mood and also hide the fact that my brother had decided to put green food coloring in the tuna noodle casserole. <laughs> Fantastic. What led to that decision? <laughs> um, well, we were innately, I think, creative and curious with food. You know, we were cooking off of like index cards that were my grandmother's recipes, you know. So food coloring is also something that we had been taught not to touch because you could create some really glorious messes with it. <laughs> Absolutely. So I think that we were kind of flirting with disaster, you know, like trying to be fun at the same time. <laughs> and, and what sort of reviews did you get from your parents? <laughs> uh, well, we're lucky we didn't. We didn't uh, have Yelp back then. I think that my mom was much more accepting of it. Uh, I don't really remember how it all ended, to be honest with you. I was pretty young. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, let's move to some more recent experiences, but still from your past. I'm, I'm curious about a few stops. I want to ask you about your time with the Michael Mina Group. There, I'm more interested organizationally. I want to hear what you have to say about that. But let's talk about Andres in the Monte Carlo and what that experience was like. I never went to Andre's. I understand he had his uh, restaurant downtown Las Vegas and then opened in the Monte Carlo and then opened Alize at Palms, I think. 
Um, I've read that when you were there, you were doing a lot of work with awful, I guess broadly termed, so sweetbreads and beef tongue and chicken feet and that kind of thing. So tell us about Andres and then what, what you brought to it and what you've carried forward from that time in your career. Well, I, uh, he also had Mistral. Okay, yes. Right, which, yeah. was, which it didn't have a long, nearly as long a run as his other restaurants, which all were around for quite a long time. Downtown was over 30 years, which is pretty spectacular. You know, Andre was a really uh, fantastic chef. He was actually in, initially a baker. Oh. And um, his first business was called Froggy's, a French bakery in downtown Las Vegas. <laughs> um, and then, I mean, he could probably tell you the story better than me, but I think he just realized there was just this, there was no, like, what he thought was, like, really great, like, French food around. And he opened a restaurant, and everybody told him he wouldn't make it because he was cooking Dover Soul, and um, and uh, they were all really wrong. Yeah. Um, and he was very, very proud of that. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Andre, you know, I think culinarily, I had had a formal background in cooking, and a lot of that was traditional French cooking. But Andre was, like, from the mountains, right? And his cooking style was... Uh, definitely, you know, French and definitely traditional, but his techniques were different than anything I've ever seen anywhere, in particular with the sauce making. And um, in the beginning, I couldn't even, like, as a chef, I couldn't get, like, a single sauce across home plate with him, you know? Um, how, how were they different? Because I've always thought that sauces are so anchored in tradition. Well, I would say, you know, the biggest one was he wouldn't, cook with any wine he wouldn't drink and he had good standards and he was he didn't do a lot of like reductions and concentrations of alcohol that technique no offense to everybody who does it has a lot to do with coaxing flavors out of inferior product so um the biggest one was in most of the cooking he would use ridiculous amounts of white wine in the beginning of a stock so it wouldn't just be all water there'd be a large volume of white wine and even in stocks that were going to be brown stocks and then lots of aromatics and as he would cooking it down he would always add in additional fortifications of the products vegetables pinsage etc etc and then we'd kind of get them close to where we wanted them stop them cool them and then during service every base sauce was heated to order and finished with high quality alcohols but that could even be like if if he had a a pinot noir sauce it would be red burgundy you know um low tannin wine from france that is delicious and you would just put a little bit in uh, once it was hot and uh, like allow the alcohol to evaporate but when you tasted the sauce you could taste Taste the wine and same thing with like a cognac cream sauce, you know, like it would be real cognac. It wouldn't be like some weird brandy. And, um, you know, if he, if it started with a reduction, you'd always like a couple drops right at the end. So you can really taste it. And his flavor profiles for sauces were just much more like dynamic and bright and alive. And it, it changed my cooking forever, you know? And, you know, I think a lot of people were like kind of looking for like, you know, big flavor and you know acidity and texture of their sauces whereas andre was just in like a completely different land yeah you know where like you'd grate fresh horseradish in at the end for beef and stuff like that and these techniques aren't something that 
I've ever seen in a book anywhere else. This was probably how his, you know, his dad or his grandpa taught him how to do it. Right. And and it sounds like I, I, it sounds delicious, but it also sounds like murder on food cost. <laughs> it needs to be an expensive restaurant. Um, and that was also kind of leads us into some of the awful usage. So I started working for him up at Alize. They worked into the management team there, got moved over to the Monte Carlo, got moved up into the chef role. And it had just gone undergone a big remodel. So there was a little bit of like financial pressure to perform there. And the remodel was gorgeous. I mean, I think it was, you know, top three rooms in Las Vegas. Wow. Like gorgeous and intimate. And the kitchen was right on the dining room and it was every table was garried on service, tons of table side. And it was hard to get out of there without having like the chef at your table or table side truffles or something. And that was just normal. That wasn't like something that I did, you know what I mean? And that was, that's how that restaurant had been for a long time. And, um, what a lot of their guests were used to, to kind of move into like, what, what did I add to that soup? The, um, he was the master of like, you were never going to be better than his filet where he like pounded the green peppercorns into it, made the cognac cream sauce to order every single time, every (laughs) single filet. If you did 50 a night, you know, you were making 50 sauces. Wow. The chef in that restaurant worked meat expedited every single day the restaurant was open we were open six days a week you worked meat and expedited expedited. six days a week holy moly on top of everything else that was the deal yeah Yeah. but that was also in in his mind how you have quality and accountability it wasn't that long ago but it was definitely a different era you know now if you told somebody that you would you're the pool of people that would be interested in doing it would be pretty slim um and i you know i think we're also trying to provide people with something a little different than that but we, we were masters of the filet mignon the lobster thermidor world class the dover sole world class right and so there wasn't like a lot of room there to win um like or to be better or, or you also didn't want to mess with that stuff because he had guests that had been with him sure. for 30 years and right. they wanted they wanted the thermidor we did change the thermidor actually a little bit. We started doing lobster reductions in the cream instead of just straight cream reductions, and he liked that, so that stayed. But um, stylistically, very in tune with him, but it was a little different. But where there was a lot of opportunity was exploring traditional French foods and preparations of cuts that weren't traditionally seen as fine dining. So these could be like the first like kidney I ever had Andre prepared for me, and that was interesting because we made a separate tasting menu that was geared at we started with single a la carte dishes and kind of saw how it went and if it was the same level of deliciousness the the appreciation was there so we started running a second tasting menu where we kind of had our our classics and then we would do other tasting menus that were focused on maybe incorporating some more modern textures and techniques and sauces and and then the secondary cuts so cooking a a pork belly at that time hadn't become like that wasn't like a fad it wasn't in like every Mm. gastro pub yet so i mean it would be everything from you know we kind of just went to the other end of the animal right right um and it was everything from you know trotters and you know head cheeses to we did a lot of clarifications we had a lot of really cool broths and consommes and gelés and just really kind of like still embracing the 
the French component, maybe with a little bit more of a contemporary edge, like, you know, using fresh turmeric and some other flavors that we might not have like normally associated with it. But when you actually cook with people that cook like in the provincial food or, or something like that, you'll find that that food was like a lot lighter and brighter and cleaner and fresher than some of what people think French food is like all butter and cream and stuff like that. Right. That's been passed down through fine dining. I mean, that stuff is there. Oh, sure. But, uh, (laughs) um, but you know, that food was always very balanced and you could eat a whole meal and do classic wine pairings and still like sleep well at night and feel good the next day. What is there anywhere, uh, or can you point to some places that carry that tradition or portions of them today? Um, and we're going to talk about your current career. So we'll track what you're doing, Mm. but are there, can you say, Graham, you should go to this place. You'll get a taste of that. Well, at the for the Raiders, one of the the players' favorite dishes the night before big games, we always do lobster thermidor. Okay, uh, as a it's a an homage. Chris Bulin, <laughs> who's our uh, one of my corporate chefs now, he's always there for that event. And he always makes it. He was the fish cook at Andres back in the day. Oh, okay. So he's a he's a star. Well, we're going to get to Honest Hospitality really soon here. But before we do, I'd love to hear a little bit about your time with the Michael Mina Group, because I think that was a big part of your career. And that has got to have informed, you know, both on the on the straight up culinary side, on the cooking side, uh, your work now, but also operationally. I think it's just such a huge organization, as I understand it. So what did it give you? We, we gave each other a lot. Michael yeah. and I had a really like uh, spectacular work synergy. Our, our focuses and our approach were almost opposites. And I'm a good at operationalizing. And like part of the reason we have a successful consulting company now is because like I love crazy ideas and figuring out how to make them work. So in the um, real world, in the yeah. real world, yeah. like, and then every day and then, functional training and tools to support hourly employees like continuously finding success with those tasks so not just can i do it once for the gram or can we do it in the first six weeks of a restaurant when all the articles are coming out and everybody wants to talk about something but long term it's completely not feasible i'm kind of like i embrace those challenges of saying like let's let's make this real and consistent and and profitable and like all the good stuff so you know, Michael is a visionary, and um, he's very much like a people person, and he is very thoughtful when it comes to the guest experience and how to make that wonderful. You know, a lot of his fame and the interest in him started when he was doing these trios, where he's like, "Why do one dish when we could do three or six? <laughs> you know, like okay. when him and Chris Lahamadou when they got the Michelin star at uh, the first michael mina restaurant in san francisco the they were doing like each course was six six riffs six on the six versions of the same protein you know with each with their own like garnishes and sauces and like if he explained it to you he's like it's easier than a normal entree and you're like chef (laughs) i love you man but this is not easier easier. like cooks are afraid so uh unlike a lot of chefs, always thought about things through the guest experience and what would be really magical for them, and we'll figure the rest out. And if it's hard, that's fine. If it was easy, everybody would do it. It's not, you know, you would hear him say that every now and again. So, you know, a lot of, you know, 
healthy conflict is like the best thing in the world, right? So for him, he's like, I got a crazy idea. And for me, I'm like, I can figure out how to make that happen. Or, you know, so there was, that's, I ended up working for him for, you know, nine years, three times as long as I've had any other job. And it's because this, I now looking back at it, realized that he was always providing new challenges, new environments, new types of businesses, fun ideas for food, TV shows, markets, social dining experiences. Like it was, you know, I think we opened like 30 something properties together. And, um, you know, a lot of them were not just your, your standard restaurant. And then we would, you know, partner with Ken Tominaga and we'd do three Japanese restaurants. And I got to immerse myself in, in like understanding of something at a really high level from somebody who literally spent their whole life doing it. And it was very different than what I did. So I would say that, you know, the cool thing about working for that company was the, the different dynamics of everything we got to do. Um, but also the standards were high for the guest experience and, it wasn't necessarily about like always recreating, you know, the wheel. It was the standards were high, the timing, the fundamentals, the expectation that you should not have to wait long for your entree. How we expedited was always about the guest. It was never about what was good for the kitchen. And a lot of chefs are like, this is what I need to do my art. And he's like, oh, no, we're going to do my art. Don't get me wrong. We're just going to do it on time. You know? <laughs> the and, guest is going to get it on time. Yeah. yeah. Watch the sparks fly. So um, I <clears throat> went from you know being a chef for Andre, which was as hands-on, as intimate of a chef experience as you could have. You know, these are 70-seat dining rooms. Like, uh, you cooked every protein that was meat, personally. The whole time you were there. I mean, you had a fish cook who did their dishes and you had entremet and, you know, one hot apps and one garmage. And we multiple tasting menus and an a la carte menu. And I mean, it was full immersion, everything you had every day of the week. Having done that, and I was lucky at a young age to be cooking at a Michelin rated restaurant. Like I was a chef of a Michelin rated restaurant in my late 20s. And at that point, I realized like it just seems silly. And this is, you know. A strange thing to say, but it, it just occurred to me that life was short, and to the idea of just continuously doing that forever, for some reason, didn't make a ton of sense. I, I wanted to see other stuff, but I had also had the opportunity to like see what that was, and I and I feel very blessed to have had that. Sometimes, if you don't like get to the top of the mountain you don't have the opportunity to look around and be like it's not actually better up here than it is down there right yeah, yeah it's, it's cold, I, it's cold. <laughs> it's and cold. I, like, I like that sunny slope over there a little further down um so it, you know it was a it was fun and i had a good time and i i certainly you know a lot of hard knocks and i learned a lot but at the same time i wanted to try something different and i had the opportunity uh to join the uh the michael mina group on a corporate team so this was rather than working at one restaurant, uh, at the, I actually took a corporate sous chef job, probably like a little overqualified for it, but at the same time, like, why not? Right. Like the, yeah. uh, and, um, so what I was traveling, uh, opening restaurants and I wasn't doing a lot of creative, like in the first step, it was mostly just execution and, and excellence, but I really took to it and I really enjoyed being in new environments and meeting all the different people and then the constant new menus 
and figuring out how to get us operationally to the same place every time before I left, but the, all the building blocks were different, right? Oh, but like, of course, yeah. The, it was different food, different people, different environment, different purchasing, you know, like different companies, and but getting us to the same place operationally, you know, and I think I, I, I thrived in that personally, the, the complexity and the frequency of change. And then it wasn't too long before I kind of like moved up to, I became like corporate executive sous chef and I was, you know, now in charge uh, or leading a small team of corporate people. And then I became corporate chef and then I actually became their first vice president of uh, culinary uh, in the last couple of years that I was there. And that was, we had gone from, you know, 20 plus restaurants to like about 40. We were doing sometimes five plus openings a year. And some of these were really big, like 20,000 plus square foot operations with like 11 kitchens and stuff like that. So not just, you know, your typical restaurant stadiums with three restaurants in them and stuff like that. Uh, So we, we had a big corporate team. It went from like, you know, Michael with his corporate chef and then like, you know, a couple transient sous chefs that helped him. You know, we had developed this into Michael was leading. I mean, I didn't develop it some stuff I did, but Michael was overseeing a large organization and really looking like five years down the road. I was kind of looking at one year down the road. And then we had corporate chefs that were broken into the, we had separated the restaurants because really much above 20, to be honest with you, like you can only provide attention to the management team so much. Sure. So a much healthier number is like, like 10 or 12. And then you can like actually have relationships and develop really good culture which means that you're running healthy businesses rather than putting out fires as a corporate chef Mm -hmm. which you'll hear a lot uh for people who kind of get into that role um you just end up getting flown all over to fill in and hire new people and fix stuff um what you the most beautiful part of the time with the mina group was we developed a team that was so strong that opening up a business was not traumatic it was fun Uh. so we also, when I came on board, he had a proprietary, a digital recipe archive called the Recipe Exchange that was in development. And it kind of went from development to full functionality. And we had a like a recipe sharing, shop, recipe sharing software for the whole company. And like we trained everybody to use it. We got everybody on the same page. And we started using it as like share drives for hosting our standard operating procedures and um, that was not common at that time. Like Google Docs was like a pain in the butt, right? So it was like, it was a different time, but we really pushed technology into the kitchens and we pushed utility of it. And then we drove success more consistently throughout all the operations because of it. Michael and you know Patrick and the other leadership team members were smart. They understood that like, we don't have to do this, but if we do, we'll be better. And not everything worked on a first try. Some things just didn't work ever. You know, you try some like app and it's, you just, nobody takes to it. And honestly, getting everybody to put all their recipes in the archive in the beginning was a real uphill battle. I'm sure. There were people that said, these are mine. Uh um, People that didn't know have any data input skills. And so it was a, it was like a very real world, you know, digital revolution in the culinary, you know, for sure. But we got to a point where, you know, we could, 
like if we had events to do or like if we were going to do another restaurant within a brand that we had done before, our capacity to develop like that menu portfolio digitally, like in advance and have everything dialed before we even stepped on property. I mean, we're, we're way ahead of the curve there. I realized a few like really important things like, you know, happiness is a choice. You got to make it. Mm-hmm. Everything else will just kind of fall into place behind that. But also when and how you manage things. You know, manage, we manage nuisances like really intensely. Never let anything get to nuclear. Like today, I sent an email out to our, our like management team. It was as a follow up on understanding microaggression. And so, like last week, we had a all staff to talk about, and not because we have a problem, but because we want to be better and smarter. Yeah. We focus on culture a lot. And culture is like we develop that. Just like any recipe, you got to evaluate the parts, understand what everything's doing, what impacts it, and now manage the shit out of it. So we manage nuisances, not nuclear issues, because we should never have nuclear issues. And honestly, by the time they're nuclear, you're not managing it, you're responding to it. So when I distill that down to its smallest piece of like interpersonal issues, it's microaggression. It is somebody slamming a door. Or asking you incorrectly, why didn't you get the lettuce ordered? You know, why did this happen? And most of the time, like our team's amazing. I I love them all. They're fantastic at what they do. And they're like great people who have the best intention. But they're passionate about being great at what they do. So there's also like, you know, it's food. We change the menu every single day. And it's three to five meal periods a day. There's seven full-time managers. It is a lot. It is a meat grinder unlike any restaurant. In the interest of being great and challenging, you're going to have scenarios where there's like varying opinions about stuff, right? So I'm like, that's normal and that's supposed to be there. And if you're not challenging it and if you're not pushing, you're not growing. So let's look at how do we manage that the best. How do you manage it the best? You distill it down to the most infinitesimal negativity humanly possible and you manage the shit out of that. that. So micro Before that starts snowballing. Correct. <laughs> yeah. So we're now focusing on training each other about how we feel and how the small things, you know, develop into big things. We started a game last week where he bought a whole bunch of Hershey Kisses and anytime anybody does any microaggression, you acknowledge it with that. With a uh-huh. kiss, right? And the idea isn't to be like you're doing something wrong or something like that. It's to help people understand that what you're doing isn't going to get you the result you want. Whether it's our relationship long term or the actual like productivity you're looking for, a slight of any kind is detrimental to that process. So creating a game to help everybody understand, because even when you're trying to do things for the best, like say, you know, uh, some people have amazing senses of humor. Some people have no sense of humor. Don't joke with them. It, right. it bothers them intensely. They go home and they're, they're still thinking about that, you know, offhand comment you made trying to be funny because to them it wasn't funny. So just kind of like trying to push that, that level of understanding with each other. So uh, looking at it a lot more like you might like a personal relationship than maybe a work relationship. Right. Because when we've all worked together for so long, it's like it really is. It is a personal relationship for sure. And you're spending more time with those people generally than you are with most other people in your life. So, of course, you're going to have no end of personal interactions with them. 
Okay, now we've made the transition I wanted to. So we're talking honest hospitality now. You mentioned seven, seven operations, seven kitchens. What What is honest? And, and what I know from the outside, I know a little bit more than this, I think the Raiders, and I'm not even a sports fan, so I know that's a big part of it. But tell us what honest is all about. So we really are two companies, an operations company and a consulting and development company. Currently, our operations team is focused on uh, sports nutrition in uh, Las Vegas. We've got a couple cool pending projects. You know, the big one every day that we're focused on is the F&B management for the actual Raiders organization. So not the event space, event space at Allegiant, but their their actual headquarters in Henderson. Right. And this is where they where the team practices, where they train, presumably, and, and you're feeding offensive linemen, among others. Yeah, it's the it's the uh, the football team, the players. I mean, and then along with them, you've got the coaching staff, scouts, medical therapists, security. We've got the business side, which is their you know everything from HR to accounting administration, executive planning, et cetera, et cetera. So it's around on average a little over three hundred people in a building a day. Okay, and we. It's a captive audience. So unlike leisure or luxury dining where you specialize in a service and different people come to see you every day for that speciality, we see the same people every day, so we need to change the food product. So the it's now breakfast is not like a full overhaul every day because nobody wants that for breakfast realistically, right? Yeah. They want their they kinda want their favorites. But for lunch for football and lunch for the business um, those menus are new every day, and and they're different. So, oh, I bet they are. <laughs> yeah. So the like business, there's a you know a couple choices for them, and then on football, we've got a, a huge range at every meal, which you know really spans from really clean, focused, protein-driven, high antioxidant offerings, all the way to gooey comfort food. You know, football is interesting in a sense that it's. In the beginning of the season, there's usually a few people trying to like trim up a little bit, but the reality is, is when you're working six days a week, working out constantly, uh, playing injuries, there's it's actually tougher to keep the calories on, and, oh, and to keep everybody healthy. So, for a lot of people, especially around the, it changes around halfway through the season. Around halfway through the season, we can make the menus like more higher caloric density. Nutrient density, we want to keep the same across the board. So we're always going to want... Our program's really cool because we work in conjunction with multiple nutritionists that are definitely at the forefront of their field. And we drive a Whole Foods, like, with contemporary supplementation programming. So professional sports, they vary depending on the length of the career anticipated, how frequently you play. Mm-hmm. And um, and then obviously like body type. So if you're, you know, a marathon runner, very different conversation than a football player. In football, it can be dangerous to get too underweight. Sure, because uh, you get yeah. you get tossed around, you get hurt. Um, I would imagine there's differences among the players. Obviously, right? The you know from the line to the I, I don't know sports at all, but the line to the punter. Yeah, the the different team groups and sizes and like how many reps they're getting, how much they're running every day, will change food quite a bit. So they're, you know, the more you're moving around, the, the more carbs you're going to need on top of your you know, protein and antioxidants every day that need to be consistent. And then 
you know, to be quite frank, it even changes the time of day and then what's going on that day. And they do definitely granulate it to that level. So, for example, early in the morning, you need to get a feeding in that's going to give you, like, you know, protein and energy for a practice and probably a workout. So when you have a high ratio of muscle mass, this is one of the first interesting things I learned about menu writing, because there was a a pretty steep curve in the beginning there, taking a bunch of fine dining chefs and saying, (laughs) you're going to cook for football players. Um, One of the first things we learned was that if you have a very high ratio of muscle mass, when you flex it and you start using it, it fills with blood. And once those muscles get all pumped up, it's like, where does that blood come from? It comes from your core and your digestive area. Mm. So what happens is digestion slows down when your muscles are working. Right. So uh, early in the morning, highly digestible, softer foods. Okay. Because they got it. You can get it into you. Right. Yeah. There are athletes, young athletes mostly, because if you make it to be an old athlete, you will have learned this lesson. But young athletes will sometimes avoid eating in the morning because they don't want to like puke while they're working out or running sprints. You'll everybody who plays high school sports will tell a story about doing sprints and puking, right? You know? yeah. And that's because you you fill your stomach up, and before it's had a chance to deal with it, you push all the the blood got to be elsewhere, out to your okay. limbs, yeah, and then your stomach's like, yeah. Uh, it's not going that way so it's going (laughs) going that way way. so i mean this is this is that and hydration are managed very closely so i I don't mean to imply that the guys are running around puking all the time but we had to learn as chefs like oh you know not only are we here to provide delicious food that's like on brand and to everybody's liking but we also have all these other considerations that change constantly on recovery days, the food will be different than on practice days. So understanding that and how it shifts our production levels. And then like throughout the week, after a game, you're going to have a day of rest. But people will still be in there getting therapy, seeing the doctors, treating themselves. And then you kind of go into an administration focus. Then you'll have more like heavier practice days. Then you take a little break and you play your next game. And you just get in this cycle during the season where basically every every week is kind of like that. But when we're looking at those menus throughout the week and throughout the month and then throughout the season, we now understand all these mini mm-hmm. you know, uh, and macro mini and macro, micro cycles, cycles yeah. uh, that we have to pay attention to. And then you know we're on our third head coach with the team. And each head coach has a different opinion on how you should do that, too. Okay, sure. Uh, That carries some weight. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It carries all the weight. Yeah, it carries all the weight. All the weight. So being agile and embracing, you know, the the same mentality that makes you great at dealing with a luxury guest can make you great at dealing with, uh, you know, professional sports managers, right? The answer is always yes. Sometimes you need more resources, but you can't get, you know, you can never be focused on the challenges and what's wrong. You have to be focused on immediate delivery of the request and then working your way through to perfecting that whatever it is. As a system so that the next time it doesn't throw you off your feet yep. when you get that request. Okay. Yep. And that'll be, and they can, you know, it's the, you know, if something great happens, they may want to spoil them. Like, and that, and that could be anything from, hey, let's just, let's do like a huge shellfish like seafood presentation all you can eat like shrimp and crab and lobsters or it could be like let's do ice cream sundaes right you know? okay <laughs> so it depends on like what kind of component you know or who they're trying to make happy or somebody loses a bet and you know it's fried chicken sandwiches or or whatever a little comfort food yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, there's there's quite a bit more comfort food than we anticipated. Oh. Um, and that, you know, it has it had to do with, you know, how, how much these guys can consume without going overweight because they yeah. burn a lot of calories. Yeah. What, but also I, just the emotional. Sure, sure. Of the job and losing. High stress. And media. and Yeah, yeah very, very high stress. Wow. What is the highest, what's the high end of the calorie mark on a day for what these guys are eating? Great question. My answer is probably going to be kind of anticlimactic, which is, Calories are much less of a consideration to very large people. Okay. Calories are the numbers you count when you're trying to be skinny. Which these guys are not trying to do. <laughs> so the I tell you, we, we we don't do a lot of we don't do a lot of calorie counting for most of the people. What will, will happen is we we may have certain players that we want to bring weight down or have targets. And then what we're going to do was you're primarily going to be counting the carbohydrates, volume of carbohydrates, because the reality is, and this is counter to most contemporary marketing, you can eat as much lean protein as you want, and you can really eat as much vegetables as you want. Sure. Dieting is a failed concept when it comes to health. It's not a good idea. And the idea of just eating less is not healthy. Eat better. Eat better and, in, and manage your food groups. So if you eat too much lean chicken breast in a day, literally nothing is going to happen to you. You're going to pass it, right? Okay, spinach salads, you know, if you're not covering them in blue cheese dressing, you can literally eat as much as you want. You will never gain weight. Your body's going to be like, this is awesome, lots of iron carbs you manage in conjunction to the energy output you have for the day and that's where you want your to find the thing we will talk about is running at caloric deficits so we do look at body type size and understanding running at a deficit if the person does need to trim down a little bit but we there's very little conversation about like oh that guy eats 6000 calories a day because almost all of the time the way more important is are they eating enough protein? Okay. Because protein rebuilds and your body is really processing in like four hour cycles. It's not a day and it's not a week. And the concept of like, oh, a, a 130 pound woman can eat eight ounces of beef a week and that's all like the iron they need. That is a, a failed mentality. The, the Your body's processing in like four hour increments. The goal is to have protein there when your body's looking for it to rebuild. And if that's because you're working out or because you're injured or because you just want to have like peak performance. So it's actually a much more important conversation. How many times have you eaten today? Uh, Then how much? Right. And then like, you know, general targets, you're going to want like one, 1.5 grams of protein per pound of body weight in a day. So if you're 300 pounds... It's 300 grams of protein in a day. And I mean, you're talking like, you know, breakfast is uh, eight eggs, you know? And so the calorie conversation, believe it or not, is less important than that. If you're getting that much protein in you, there's a good chance there's not much room for other stuff. (laughs) For anything else. So um, you're not going to see like, you know, me getting... 60 grams of protein in one of my five feedings for the day and then also at that point if that guy feels the need to also eat 
a huge bowl of pasta, like the reality is, is it's fine. Right. The they're going to crush it tomorrow. <laughs> tomorrow, you know, it will be gone before you know it. So the the ideas is as of that calories are like an indicator of health is also like innately incorrect. What's much more important is are you feeding your body protein because that's what your body wants to to. To rebuild itself and like constantly be you know recirculating these cells we're these we're a magical machine you just got to feed it so carbs for energy protein non-stop okay and that really is for everybody that's not just athletes yeah um and vegetables are basically your vitamin pills just eat yeah. eat way more of them than you think you'd eat, eat as much as you can yeah eat as much as you can you can't hurt yourself Right. Your body will just, your kidneys will just deliver and they'll, they'll take care of everything you don't want. But, you know, we do we have a cool cold-pressed juice program. It's a, one of the best ways to put a lot of nutrients in you right away that are super bioavailable. That's something else we, we talk about is, is bioavailability because, <clears throat> like, the egg is incredibly available. It breaks down very easy. Your body knows how to process that protein, like, very easy. You will get most of what you put in. You will be able to extract it. Certain things are much harder. Plant proteins, much harder to break down, very low bioavailability. So like if you're taking supplements, like a pea protein, it might say there's, you know, 20 grams per serving. Your body will have a hard time getting all 20 grams of it. Uh, sometimes you need to take it in conjunction with other foods for to get close. So it's, it's a little tough because, you know, the... Dairy proteins, whey protein, and things like like beef and chicken and these like very basics like yeah. do end up. There's a reason that they work so well. They, yeah, and they've been used for so long. Well, I'm really glad to hear this because I love all of them. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, Jeff. I don't want to keep you much longer, but I do have a couple more questions. Let's pull back. I could keep talking for hours, honestly. Let's pull back and talk a little bit about the industry because one thing that I learned about you when I first started following your Instagram is how thoughtful. You are about the industry, about the people in the industry, and how they are going to thrive. Remember, you used to post videos. I think you were either set up the camera in your car or something, and the, at the end of the day, you'd often have thoughts. And they're really good thoughts, uh, very thoughtful about the industry and what's good with it and what's wrong with it. So these days, the industry has really changed. It's got you know, a ways to go to improve in some ways. So how do I get into this topic? What do you look for in a young cook or what do you see in a young cook that, or what do you try to cultivate in a young cook that makes you think this person is going to do well in this industry? Interesting question because I think do well is relative. Mm -hmm. Like I'm sure. And the industry changes. The well changes. Yeah. Um, And people do it for different reasons. I, kind of like reversed my approach and I stopped trying to think about how people were going to serve me and I started thinking about how I could serve them and the greatest indicator of whether or not a team member will stay and be successful is a manager's ability to give them what they need as a person so very interesting yeah okay so effective career pathing understanding longevity growth, education, there are things that are like universally true, but most of the time, the greatest mistakes are people being incredibly narcissistic, but it's also understanding that everybody's narcissistic 
and I don't mean that necessarily in a bad way. We are, right? Yeah. The I mean, if you can understand what they want and need and give it to them, they stay. So yeah. when I look at like a member of the management team, I don't have a criteria that I need them to match and say, if you can do these five things, you can be on our team. I think you may find success occasionally. But really what I look at is I say, you know, what does this person want and need out of life? What is the circumstances happening outside? Like I know if you've had a a child recently, you're going to just have a priority shift. Listen to that person. Talk to them. See what's going on. What do they need? Right? Do their schedule need? Do they need more sleep? Do they want, you know, their wife has to be at work at this time and, you know, something like that. Or the if they have hobbies or interests or things that are important to them, the, figure out how to make that happen. If you can figure out how to make those little things happen for people, you'll be surprised that maybe like $2,000 raise or bonus or something that may have, that missed their last boss missed that made them leave their job, that may be less important to them because you're serving the real needs of their lives. So what I look for is first internally, I look for myself to create a work environment that people want to be in. And then I look to myself to provide them with reasonable compensation for their skills. I look to myself to understand what they need. And then I look to myself to have a process for reevaluating. So we have like cool evaluative processes and one-on-ones that we do with people. After all of that, I can now look at somebody and say, I absolutely expect you to perform to the standards put in front of you. Sure. They've been clearly expressed. The tools are there. The recipes are there. The time management is there. And we're going to forgive you when you fuck up. You get another app. You get another chance. You'll actually keep getting chances if you're trying hard. You know? But I think the, the, the most interesting thing we've done in the last few years was to, uh, and I haven't talked about this you know, publicly very much, but was to degrade the traditional hierarchy. One of the reasons that a lot of industries suffer from leadership is because they put too much pressure on one person. We were forced into a scenario uh, working with the Raiders when we change the food every day. You can't have one person responsible for purchasing, scheduling, employee development, physical plant. Like, it, 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 you can't do it, right? So instead of looking at this traditional hierarchy where everything has to pass up and down, when it has to change that fast, it doesn't work. So we laid it down on its side. We created identi- accountability focuses. Each manager has an area that they're an expert and in charge of, and they have a manager to back them up and an hourly employee who is an accountability buddy. So each bubble has three people working in it. Yeah. And what happens is you still have oversight of an executive chef, but they are not responsible for accomplishing these tasks. The chef de cuisine is responsible for developing the new recipes and having them digitized, tested, and tasted in advance of going into circulation. Our executive sous chef is responsible for purchasing, and but we also just change it up. So yeah. we'll, we'll, we're always cross-training. So you might be a primary on culinary development and a secondary on physical plant, and then next rotation you could be in charge of employee development, right? And that'll be labor cost control scheduling, understanding what's going on in everybody's lives, but also their development, doing their evaluations, putting together their goal 
like, cause we always have personal and professional goals for everybody at each one of the kind of check-ins and, uh, and they're hard. They're hard. Like the goals are hard because like I learned that, you know, you're going to grow the best when you have a scary list of things to do. <laughs> yeah. And, but even if you miss, if you've got a scary list, if you're getting anywhere near the top of it, like you're growth, doing amazing, you're things. doing amazing. Right. Yeah. So it's like the, um, like, so one of them, like for, we have a, uh, an hourly employee, Ed, really sharp, tons of experience. We, um, we challenged him with coming up with like 10 interactive dessert stations, uh, or 12 actually for our feast nights for these, the nights before games. And last year we didn't do any, right? Like we had big dessert displays and stuff like that. And it's cool stuff, but nothing that was like interactive and we're like, do 12, I mean, if we have three this year out of 12, that would be great, right? If we get to sure. eight, amazing. I mean, if yeah. he actually gets 12. But his his skill set is going to, we're all going to have to run to keep up with that goal and to get close there. And, you know, honestly, that keeps people focused on the right things. I think the worst thing you can do for a team is to, to let them stagnate. And it sounds to me like this flat, flatter organizational structure that you've got with everybody rotating through, it's going to be much more, already is, I assume, much more nimble everybody's able to pitch in on different places. Yeah, it's easier to give people time off. Two years ago, our focus was, like, I need everybody to be great at their jobs so that when somebody needs something, we can give it to them with pleasure. You know, somebody's sick, you know, somebody's kid gets sick and they can't come in. We should feel obliged to provide that service for them, right? Give them the time. And when they come back in, there can be no, not only can there not be hard feelings, but we should be like, hey, I hope your kid's better. Sure. Not yeah. like, hey, down deep, I fucking hate you. Right. For not yeah, coming yeah. in work yesterday, man. I had work. So I did your job the last two weeks. Right. Yeah. And the only way to really to do that is to actually support the needs of the business. You can't just take away. So one, you gotta have uh, lessened expectations for profitability. Get over that. And then two, you can't say it, you gotta put your money where your mouth is. So you're, you need to overmanage a little bit. You need to overstaff a little bit. You can't okay. run so tight that when some person calls off, it's catastrophically bad for everybody else. And, uh, and now they all resent each other a little bit. And the next day, it's microaggression central. Right. And it's building and people are quitting. And Yep. Yeah. Now, that's very easy to say when you're a little bit of a larger organization and you're like funded and there's some wiggle room that's extremely challenging to do in small businesses but, but a lot of the time, honestly, the money's there. People choose not to do it for profit. What, what responsibility lies with people like me, consumers who come in and enjoy restaurants? Because when you're talking about profitability and you're talking about fair wages to employees, it seems to me that so often runs up against this comment, which is, 18 bucks for a burger? No way. What... How does that change? Apart from, I hope, in some small way, podcasts like this that get the word out. But what does the consumer do in this mix? What can we do? That is a spectacular question that nobody asks. Good for you. Uh, <laughs> the, you know, I'll tell you. The, I think that most like um, hospitality operators understand that there's going to be pricing resistance and... Like, things have to change, and that can be tough on everybody. Like, I think everybody gets that, right? So I think if I could ask consumers to do one thing, it would be have a relative assessment of value. 
understand that like it's great when you go Yelp. It is. It's great for businesses that try hard. Uh, it yeah. may stink for businesses that miss the mark constantly. Sure. Right? They should try harder or change. But the user-generated reviews can be really helpful to a business. And it's the best way for the our entire like hospitality economy to shift business patterns in the right directions. Because mm-hmm. you know what people are commenting on, what they want. If you have a great time and the value is right, say something nice. But the tougher part for like non-professionals to understand is the relative value conversation. And why a lot of people get frustrated with user-generated reviews sometimes is because they are, the, the scale doesn't slide properly, right? That one to five star rating needs to be based upon the dollars spent. If you're having an $11 meal that comes out of a plastic box and you rate it with some of the same criteria <laughs> that you're using to, for your dinner at Joel Robuchon, well, of course he's five stars, but that doesn't mean that the guy selling $11 salad should be three. You gotta look and be like, for $11, is this clean? Is this presented as nicely as it can be? Is it fresh? Is it delicious? And is it a great value for $11? And if it is, give them the five stars. Yes. Right? The I think the hardest thing for people to do is to, is to rate effectively, right? To step back and be like, this is a $12 salad. This is a $22 salad. And understand that, okay, wait, those products are really similar, but this environment has a live entertainment. This environment has like a lighting scheme that's a quarter million dollars instead of some table lamps I got at an antique store. (laughs) And some candles from Ikea. Yeah. Um, You know, you'll see in, in markets that are like aggressive, you'll see interesting things happen where like people get alarmingly high ratings or something like that where they haven't put any money into any of that other stuff it's just all about food you know like i remember when like animal opened up in la and i went to go eat there was like it was literally just like concrete walls and the benches and you had to share tables with other people and the food was spectacular and you're all like that was great some people didn't like touching elbows and you know you could just see like the ratings were like all over the place because dollar for dollar they put all their money on the plate and I'm not knocking there, you know, anything, but they didn't, like, a server would greet you at the door in between talking to tables. There wasn't even a hostess, right? They put all their money into the meat of the experience in their eyes. Yeah. Whereas now you see, like, we're, we're on the flip side with all these, like, vibe restaurants where all the money is going into decor and experience. And then sometimes what shows up on the plate is, wow, you know, <laughs> yeah. like, this is $58. Right. Holy shit, guys, you know? Um <laughs> But that, but that chandelier was. Well, God and they're going to do thirty-eight million, and you you start to question your career choices. <laughs> yeah. You know? The uh, oh, don't give in. The um, there's the tough part, I guess. Like my point is, there's so much different ways that people could be excellent, and um, to just really maybe before you give them feedback, just try to like step back and go, is this a relative request for what they're asking me for? Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're you're selling food, it's about what did it really cost you and, and was there great value there? And I and then I don't think that we can ask for more than that. Right. Like asking for like honest opinions or people are fair. I think yeah. that's what we can ask for. That's, I think that's it. That's it. That's fair enough. I like it. Okay, chef, I'm going to let you go soon. I've got one last question. I want to take us away from the, the overview, the theoretical that I've loved talking to you about. 
and I want to come back to super practical, and I apologize, I try to let people know in advance about this question, but I don't think it's going to phase you. What is a dish? I love asking chefs this question, and I'm doing it for the benefit of my listeners. It's the end of a busy day. You finished your day as a whatever, as a chef, as a bus driver, as a engineer. You get home, you're hungry. What's something that you can describe in a minute on this podcast and that my listeners can prepare for themselves in 30 minutes at home? That's going to be delicious dinners on the table and you're super happy to be eating it. I'm a fairly utilitarian eater at home, as I think a lot of people who cook professionally are, because we get to we get to flex all those muscles at a different point in the day. You know, if I could encourage people to eat anything late at night, um, it would probably be like clean proteins with spice driven. And, uh, and veggies, I think when I am uh, like tight on time and energy, I do a lot of like broiling because you can like load a tray up and even if you need to cook for a couple people. Under the uh, broiler. Yeah. yeah. And you also, honestly, it's great for nutrient value. Yeah. Because you can get stuff cooked without hammering it too much. Right. You know? I mean, it's tough for me to answer because it could be anything. I'm oh, just God. like, what's going on in my fridge is a really like, it's a wild conversation. The um, I could have weird fermenty stuff or or some chicken breast, right? Like it's, uh, it's kind of all over the place. But I have a tendency to, I'll, I'll kind of like batch cook for groups and then I always kind of like save some and I package up little, like right now in my freezer, I have chilies, sauces, turkey pot pies, smoked wild rice soups and stuff. So like when I go home at night, I'll usually lean into something I've already done. Sure. But that's tough to say to somebody who doesn't cook all the time that's because right. they're going to be like, I don't have any of yeah, that stuff. Right. Chef, don't be a jerk. Right. I didn't smoke my wild rice earlier today. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, what I would say is, you know, try to keep some clean proteins kicking around and invest in your spices. Okay. You know, buy and it doesn't need to be wildly expensive, but a company like uh, like like Spiceology, you can get delicious blends of like like Berber or Harissa and you can create some wonderful flavors that are low calorie, super delicious, easy to prepare and you can, you know, sprinkle them on proteins for a, a quick sauté and you know, I do a lot of one pan cooking, so I'll sear my mushrooms and like pull them out and sear a steak and then put it all back together and season it up and you know hit it with some soy and etc cetera, etc cetera, and three minutes all together and then i only have one pan to clean nice i would do that too that's awesome well listen chef thank you so much for taking the time this has been fantastic great that was a that was a very fun interview thank you for having me Jeff, thank you so much. I really enjoyed our discussion. I've wanted to speak to you for a long, long time. It was great to sit down and have such a wonderful talk. Thank you for taking part. And for the toques, we continue to wear them. Thank you for being here as well. I always appreciate you choosing to spend some time with me here on Cheftimony. If you're enjoying the show, please do tell a food-loving friend about it. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Cheftimony wherever you listen. If you leave a written review on Apple Podcasts in particular, that really does help other people find the show, and it would also warm my heart. So thank you for considering a written review. It means a lot. And reviews aren't the only form of contact we can have. I would love to hear from you directly if you've got a guest suggestion for the show, 
a topic idea, comment, or a question, please do reach out. You can find me on social media. I am at Cheftimony on a bunch of platforms, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and Twitter. On LinkedIn, feel free to connect with me there. You'll find me under my name, Graham McLennan, and you can always send me an email, and those go to graham at cheftimony.com. All right, that is all for episode 64. Thank you for being here. I'm Graham McLennan, and I'll see you again soon, right here on Cheftimony.